Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today, I welcome back to the podcast Alina Kutsko. Alina is the director of the Globsec Policy Institute Think Tank in Bratislava, and we're going to be talking about what is happening in Belarus. What does that mean for Russia, for the Eastern Europe, and also for the European Union? And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for the month of September. I'm here with Elena Kutsko. Elena, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for inviting me back. Oh, it's great to have you here. I had Alina on podcast 32 at the time we were going through the worst period of the confinement, which, by the way, how are things with you? Things are doing very well here. Bratislava um, has been coping well. We're more or less back to life, and we hope that we will keep managing the pandemic well. Yes, and uh, I asked Alina to talk to me today because of what is happening in Belarus. And uh, Alina, she's a director of the Globsec Policy Institute Think Tank in Bratislava, and you guys have been very active on this. You had a statement in the situation in Belarus. You also have work which support democratization and reconciliation process in the Western Balkans. Why is this important, Alina? Why should we have our focus now on what's happening in Belarus? This is Belarus today, such an interesting case that uh, uh, it is important, but also interesting and consequential for pretty much everyone who I can think of to follow. And I mean, not just politicians or political leaders, but also uh, regular people, normal people in the society. And I will explain why. Of course, first thing, nobody really wants a humanitarian crisis nowhere in the world, but especially in your own neighborhood. Nobody wants an open conflict. Nobody wants uh, uh, people to suffer. Nobody wants the refugees, instabilities, potential smuggling, and so on to go on right next to where you live. So this is kind of an obvious uh, reason why everybody is so much engaged. But for me, the situation is also very telling for a much broader set of issues. And the first one is this broader discussion that we've been having about uh, how authoritarianism creeps in and how hard to overthrow it. And this is mm -hmm. discussion about the balance between democracy and authoritarianism, how democracies can flourish and how we can stop authoritarianism from coming in. And if I were living in any Western countries, looking at what's happening in Belarus, I would immediately run to my own institutions and check whether, for example, the courts are independent, whether we have media that is independent, whether there is a balance of power and whether rule of law applies in my own country. This is exactly because what we see in Belarus, all these processes were very gradually eroding in the country until the situation reached this uh, irreversible situation that we have currently. So what we learn is that it's often much easier to prevent it than overthrowing the authoritarian regime where it's at the height of its power. But it's also interesting to see uh, what's going on in Belarus from the perspective of uh, what kind of influence the outside world has. We're in the EU are often concerned about, uh, for example, bringing change in other countries. But can the European Union do much about situations like that? 
Uh, some people say not much, but actually I think that we can do more than we think we can, but not necessarily in ways that people notice. Of course, what people notice immediately is the big statements or, for example, if there is some kind of a military, military confrontation. But what is more important is the long-term work that the European Union has been doing and that I think it should be continuing doing. And I mean here support for civil society, support to independent media, support to people who want to self organize or that who want to have better education. Another aspect that's very interesting for me is this, uh, uh, the power of social solidarity that is very visible in Belarus currently. The whole protest, the large-scale protest that we're having now, it's only possible because people trust each other so much and are helping each other so much. We see, for example, that uh, uh, there is a huge fundraising campaign within the country for people who get fired because they participated in the protest or strikes, or support to people, legal support or financial support for people who were arrested by the police and beaten up. So this social solidarity factor is very important in any society, and there is a lot we can learn from what's happening in Belarus now. And probably another one that is more, um, it's helping people to go through this difficult time in Belarus, but it's also uh, very inspiring for people from abroad, uh, and I mean the creativity of protesters. If you look at the mm -hmm. posters that protesters are having, or the very inventive forms of protest that people are coming up with, it's in a way, it's fun to watch. Of course, the situation is very sad, but this is so inspiring and so mobilizing that I, I myself believe in this power of creativity to overcome all the differences uh, and all the difficulties in the society. And this creativity also borders with uh, the distributions of roles during the protests. Of course, the question is often, uh, People feel that they are powerless, that they by themselves cannot do much. But how it works in Belarus currently is that everybody has a role to play. For example, if you're a factory worker, you can strike and stop the factory. This is pretty clear. But uh, let's say, what do you do if you just... Uh, you're not a worker, but you would do something else. You can cook wonderful. People who can cook, they bring food to the protesters. You can mm. sing wonderful. We have the wonderful protest organized by philharmonic orchestras who sing songs uh, and flash mobs of people who sing songs in the uh, shopping centers. Everyone has a role to play here and every, no one has an excuse not to participate. And this feeling is so extremely liberating and empowering and at the same time very scary for the dictator. Let's pick up on something that you said which is very important and that is what the European Union can do. And we've been seeing some work done at the EU level the European Commission at the European Parliament also. For example, the EU did not recognize the election results. Uh, it's imposing sanctions. They also had uh, Svetlana Tikhonovashka in Brussels so that she uh, was able to make a, an appeal for Belarus. There's uh, some critique, Alina, and I'm sure you know this, that the European the Europeans could have done more in 1996 when the referendum for an increased power of uh, Lukashenko was um, run in, it was also a sham uh, referendum. What more can the European Union do in this particular, in your opinion? Uh, 
Right. There, there's always been a discussion about uh, how much the EU can do and what it should be doing in a particular moment. But indeed, we cannot change the past. So let's focus on what we can do now. I think what the EU doing right now is actually very important and uh, very remarkable. Uh, we see this unanimity in terms of sanctions. And that is not something that should be underestimated. That's a very strong message. That's a very mm -hmm. strong indication where the EU stands. That's a message not only to the current government, but it's also a message to the protesters who see this signal that uh, there are places in the world that are not like our own government. And that's a very motivating signal to try to keep fighting for what they think is a more decent society. So even the sanctions themselves are very important. I do not think that the sanctions by themselves will be a fundamental in changing the situation. Uh, the sanctions are uh, targeted, they're important, they're symbolic, they will do some economic damage for particular individuals, but they will not bring the change that, that we're hoping for. What is more important, and this is something uh, that I mentioned not necessarily gets to the headlines, is this longer-term work. Already now, the EU is trying to mobilize the funds for people, for example, who are um, victims of the uh, police brutality. And that's not necessarily always EU level, but the individual governments are doing a lot as well. For example, uh, several governments already uh, expressed the willingness to take the students who are expelled from the universities and provide them scholarships to uh, study in their countries. Uh, mm -hmm. There is lots of support for the civil society organizations in Belarus. This is uh, very important because it's very hard for these organizations to secure funding domestically because everything is pretty much controlled by the government. And this kind of helps the society to learn how to work together, how to uh, take care of their own lives by themselves, uh, implement various projects. Uh, so all this counts a lot. Definitely the uh, visa liberalization that the European Union has uh, uh, already introduced is very important. I do hope that there is going to be more work on uh, visas and I do hope that there is going to be even visa for regime for Belarusians. Um, but this is, of course, something that will be done in the future. There is a very important factor and it ties up nicely to what you said about this modernization of Belarus, uh, not only the economy, but also society. And that is how sophisticated the uh, protests are. And this has to do with an increased internationalization of Belarusians. After so many years of economic stagnation, of turning to the inside and turning to the giant uh, Russia at their side, it is true that, especially the young generation, and also with tech being a booming business in Belarus, and I, I thought it was really interesting that people are taking pictures with their cell phones of their votes. So this is something that we also, as Europeans, could help Belarus, which is to modernize, to have more of a development on this area. You are very much on point, Ricardo. Uh, definitely, first thing that you mentioned, and I absolutely agree with it, is there is, uh, probably as in any country, there is this generational shift. 
younger generation is always more mobile, more outward looking, uh, more creative, more modern than the uh, older generation. And the younger generation is the one who is more ready to embrace change. We have absolutely the same processes going on in Belarus. The uh, part of it is definitely connected with the fact that the younger generation is much more well-traveled. They have seen the world, they have seen different alternatives, they know how things can be done differently. So they are more open to trying to introduce this change at home as well. The role of technology was absolutely fundamental during the elections in Belarus. And there are two parts to this role of technology conversation. The first part is, as you pointed out, the IT sector in Belarus is booming. This is the people who are usually younger, more prosperous, uh, who are, know that they can achieve something in their lives and who are ready to take control of their lives. So um, this uh, IT-driven mindset in the country definitely has played a role. And also it's interesting that you mentioned this vote-taking, uh, picture-taking of the votes during the elections. Why it was done, of course, there were um, expectations that the votes will not be counted properly. So there was a group of people who organized an online platform where people can upload the pictures of their ballots so that we can have a transparent, open uh, count of votes. And uh, this platform, again, was organized uh, and driven. Uh, some of the people who drove this process were people working in the IT sector. Mm -hmm. So this technology was very fundamental there. And if another very important technological element and that brought so much change and made this change possible is the reliance on social media for protest mobilization. And there's particularly uh, the Telegram app that has become uh, Telegram and Viber. Those two have become the go-to source for protesters. The media in Belarus is very much restricted. There is not much uh, coverage that you can get. And what also happened during uh, in the aftermath of the election is the uh, government pretty much cut off the internet access in the country for three days. Internet uh, Telegram, though, kept working because people quickly learn how to use VPN servers and so on. So uh, the main source of news now in the country is largely Telegram channels, uh, and the that's how the coordination of protests is going on, also through chats and Telegram and Viber. So definitely the technological element is very important, and that's also, uh, and this information element is very important. And you're absolutely right in saying that the European Union has a tremendous capacity to um, support these elements uh, to bring broader change in Belarus and support the population in Belarus. It can be done in several ways. First way uh, is, of course, uh, uh, probably a bit more technologically sophisticated, but what I, as far as I understand that's possible, uh, is to provide the uh, internet coverage for Belarus from the uh, neighboring countries uh, in the cases when the domestic internet is being cut off. So this is more sophisticated technological solution. But even the basics, and that's actually what the European Union has been doing in the past, is the support to independent media that has largely been uh, uh, very much restricted in the country. But there are several important broadcasters that are based in the European Union that were fundamental for providing the coverage during the protest. And for example, this is Radio Free Europe. The US plays an important role here as well, but they are based in Prague and have their reporters in Belarus. And of course, that's the Belsat channel that is uh, based in Poland, but also broadcast for Belarus. Now let's uh, shift a little bit our conversation. 
is coming up next for uh, Belarus. There's, um, in my opinion, some interesting parallels to what we saw in Ukraine with Yanukovych. And it was very interesting to see that um, the bear on the room, we normally use that for elephants, but in this particular, there's this, this, this big bear that we have to to account for, which is, of course, Russia. And it's in, it was interesting to see that Vladimir Putin did not uh, came across to help friend Lukashenko. But on the other hand, he didn't also, of course, and that was to be expected, he did not censor uh, the Belarus dictator and he did not, not ask for reforms, which is, of course, absolutely understandable. And if we do know about Putin, he will never do that because he see all change near their, his borders as a threat. But we have uh, Svetlana, she's been very, very brave. We have the people in the streets, they've been very, very brave. But what happens next, Alina? That's the million dollar question in all possible ways. Um, nobody really knows. Uh, and uh, I will be humble here, I could not predict uh, what would be happening this three weeks of protest it's something i don't think anyone could have imagined and i wouldn't believe anybody who who would tell me that they saw it coming uh, at such a scale but definitely the question is what next the protests were incredible overwhelming inspiring but the thing is that lukashenko simply refuses to go away and uh, if the protesters are peaceful, they can go sing songs, they can go uh, demonstrate in the streets, but in a way, Lukashenko can just keep ignoring them and keep uh, repressing them, keep firing people with the hope that uh, the protest will go away eventually soon. So there is definitely this stalemate. And to add to that, Lukashenko actually refuses to recognize protesters as a legitimate um, segment of the population to talk to. Uh, he refuses to recognize the transition council that was organized by the opposition. So definitely the question, what happens now? And the um, the resilience of the protesters will be important, but as you rightly pointed out, uh, unfortunately, the role of the outside um, powers, and here I mean not just Russia, but also the European Union, the US, international community in general, will play a role there as well. You mentioned Russia and the parallels with Ukraine. There are definitely a lot of parallels that people can make. Uh, I would like to point out uh, a difference uh, that is very noticeable in the case of Belarus from what was going on in Ukraine. In Belarus, the protesters were never, and the protests themselves were never anti-Russian. They weren't, nor were they anti-EU or pro-EU. The issue was entirely domestic, so the geopolitics were not important for protesters. And this is an important factor also to understand, to understand why Russia is doing what it's doing or what it can do in the future. Um, because the protests were not anti-Russia, it naturally puts uh, Vladimir Putin in a rather tricky situation. Because if you crack down on protesters too much, uh, then you risk turning the population against you. And remember, this population was not anti-Russian to start with, but mm -hmm. it can become anti-Russian if uh, uh, Russia too brutally uh, takes the side of the regime that has lost its legitimacy. That said, what's important is that uh, Vladimir Putin has offered political support to Lukashenko and also um, some support on the ground. 
We know that uh, Russian media is actively involved in shaping the content of the media in Belarus. Lukashenko himself admitted that he has invited uh, uh, a few representatives of Russian media to work at the TV stations and the radio of Belarus to help with the messaging. This is very visible on the ground. Basically, we see uh, the same content that's being content that's being broadcast on Russian media being broadcast on Belarusian media, and of course they're working together on shaping the narrative that protesters are just a small group of population that is being paid by the West. Uh, uh, they say that the all these reports of beating and brutality of the police, they are fakes, uh, NATO is about to attack Belarus, and so on. So this narrative is actively shaped also with the help of the uh, Russian media. Also, there is definitely support coming from Russia in terms how to respond to the protesters, um, how much to react with police, or how much to react with other forces, uh, uh, or with other means, how to handle the protesters. So this kind of help from Russia is already present, even though, of course, it's much less noticeable than the outright intervention, but potentially even much more consequential. So what's going to come next, it's really difficult to say. Definitely a lot of people are hoping for some kind of a negotiation process. Potentially, uh, I do see that eventually um, Russia would even back uh, this uh, process, but I don't think this is going to happen in the next months, but rather later when there is going to be more control over the situation on the ground and more certainty uh, about in which direction any potential new elections or reform can go. It's interesting that you said about uh, Russia helping shaping narratives, because if someone has experience in shaping narratives, is the Russian government and the Russian media. So, uh, Elena, as we are coming down to uh, the end of our time today, what is the importance of having, um, with all those difficulties that you just mentioned, but have a more democratic and free society in Belarus? It has an effect immediately in Eastern Europe. That is, of course, a guarantee. It's, it's another neighbor that could have a closer relationship to a lot of countries that have been doing a similar job that I imagine Belarus population would like to go through, which is not, and as you mentioned very uh, correctly so, not being like absolutely pro-European and saying, like, we want to be part of NATO, we want to be part of the European Union. Exactly, as you mentioned, they don't have that kind of aspiration yet. But normally, people want to be freer. People want to have their votes cast and accounted for. People want more democratic processes. So that'll be a, a, a great development, which you would have to be another partner in the Eastern Europe, helping that region getting stronger. But how does that affect the balance of power? And you're just talking about geopolitics a minute ago. Right. This is always a very um, complicated situation. And um, all sides agree on one principle. Of course, they, they disagree on the implementation of this principle. And the principle is that the people of Belarus have a right to choose how they want to live. And uh, definitely, as you mentioned, who doesn't want to have a better life? And by better life, I mean, who doesn't want 
an assurance that when they go out in the street, they're not going to be beaten up by the police, arrested and thrown to prison without any possibility to prove that they actually have done nothing wrong. Everybody wants some kind of rule of law. Everybody wants to have a certainty that there are rules in the society and everybody plays by these rules. Everybody wants to have a certainty that if they, for example, want to have a business, again, if they play by the rule, the business can flourish. Everybody wants to have some kind of uh, decency in the society and some kind of honesty in the society where the media would actually show what's going on in the country instead of showing a rather surreal message of imaginary uh, ideas. So definitely people uh, of Belarus do want this, uh, what we call a democratic way of life, even though they do not necessarily say it in these words. Uh, so this is what people of Belarus want. The question, of course, uh, what is better for other countries? Um, legitimately, this is secondary, what other countries find uh, um, better for them concerning how Belarus could be arranged. But unfortunately, the reality is that uh, uh, there is this geopolitical discussion that is going on. Definitely for uh, Vladimir Putin, he would not be too excited if there is a prosperous country in the neighborhood that has a very different form of uh, uh, state and government arrangement that there is in Russia, simply because it sends a very, from probably a Russian government point of view, a wrong message to the domestic population uh, that the what happened in, in Belarus, if there is a successful change of the government straight away, that this is also possible in Russia. And that's probably not necessarily something that the Russian government is too excited about. For the European Union, in a way, the European Union here is on the side of the what people want. Uh, European Union is perfectly excited if the people of Belarus can have a democracy in their own country, uh, if they can have the rule of law in the country. Some people would call it geopolitics. I do not necessarily see that from the side of the European Union, this is a geopolitical message. Of course, it can be translated as such, but um, in a way, the nature of the European Union and the values that they profess at home and, and abroad is that everybody deserves a decent life. Um, Everybody deserves rule of law. Everybody deserves to be to have uh, uh, human rights. Uh, so from that perspective, I wouldn't characterize when the European Union is acting geopolitically. They're just standing by the values that they profess at home and abroad. Well, anyway, Alina, time flies. We're having a great conversation, but I'm running out of time. I'm running out of your time which I'm going to thank you so much again for coming back to the podcast. And please tell people how they can follow the work by Globsec. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for having me back again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to uh, talk to the European Liberal Forum, and you're doing a great job with a series of podcasts. So I highly recommend everybody to go back in history and listen to all the work that you're doing. And uh, we would be happy if the listeners can also follow Globsec. You can do it through our website, which is globsec.org, or through our social media. Please join our events, uh, and we'll be happy to have you with us. Yes, I'm going to put all the links on the uh, show notes of the podcast. And Alina, I hope to have you back soon. And thank you so much for the work you guys have been doing. Thank you so much, Ricardo.
I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by Elf for this month of September. On the 18th of September in The Hague, in the Netherlands, we're going to have the European Trainers Academy. This is a project that will establish an Elf framework for training of trainers in order to further promote capacity building and improve the quality of training across the liberal network. Potential trainers include professionals, experts and practitioners in their respective fields of political work who will be able to share their knowledge within their party organizations, foundations, as well as participate in events in the region and beyond. This event is organized by the European Liberal Forum, supported by International Education Center, the High Evan Summerens Teaching and IDI. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Liberal Forum.